Good evening. Uh, tonight's speaker is Dr. Ben Witherington. He is the Amos Professor of New Testament for Doctoral Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He is on the doctoral faculty at St. Andrews University in Scotland and Brunel University in London. He has taught at Ashland Theological Seminary, Vanderbilt, Duke Divinity School, and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He holds degrees from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and the University of Durham in England. He is the author of over 30 books and a sought-after speaker and tour leader throughout the world. He is the general editor of the New Cambridge Bible Commentary Series, a member of the Society for the Study of the New Testament, and the winner of Christianity Today's 1996 Best Biblical Studies book for his Jesus Quest. Uh, his books, at least a, a selection of them, will be available for him to sign and for purchase outside in the vestibule when this uh, talk is over. His reputation as a biblical scholar is very well established. He's written commentaries on virtually every book of the New Testament. Dr. Witherington describes his exegetical approach to biblical literature as socio-rhetorical, finding insights into the biblical text through his study of ancient social conditions and customs and Greco-Roman rhetorical styles. Ben has also explored and written insightfully about the powerful roles of narrative in Paul's letters. I had the opportunity to spend a few days with Ben some time back, and I found him to be intensely interested and informed about just about everything. I realized that his study of popular culture was not just historical. He knew every single basketball statistic that there was to be had, uh, and I guess coming from North Carolina, that's not surprising. Uh, but Ben also knew about music. He recognized popular singers on the television. He knew what songs they produced. When we went to lunch, there was a jazz combo. He could sing all the songs along with the jazz combo. And when I checked his blog, I realized that he posts music that he likes. He's very familiar with what's going on in the music world. I discovered also that he is very familiar with popular literature. He regularly writes in his blog about literature that's just available out there that's not particularly religious even. Uh, and he posts reviews of those things. Um, he has even written with his wife a mystery novel, The Lazarus Effect, uh, which is uh, at least ostensibly secular. Um, in our conversations, I discovered that in addition to all of this awareness of popular culture, he is not um, lacking in the massive academic background that's required for a scholar these days and that he spends as much time preparing for his scholarly work as he does discovering about the world about, around him. I also discovered that we share an interest in environmental concerns. 
He drives a hybrid car, and he has developed with his wife a wildflower meadow at their home in Kentucky. And in driving through Houston, the last time we visited, he could name all the different kinds of pine trees that there are in Houston, which I, I knew there were dead ones and live ones. Um, <laughs> Dr. Witherington's intellectual power, deep personal faith, and wide range of interests have suited him well to address this evening's topic, Paul's evangelism in light of the personal and collective consciences of people, the activities in which they engage, and the lives and concrete milieu which are theirs. With you, I look forward to hearing him. Let me first thank Father Nesty for the very kind invitation to be with you. I will say that Father Raymond Brown is somebody who has been very influential in my scholarship and my work. And when he, near the end of his life, when he came and lectured at Asbury, and there was this lugubriously long introduction of him, he got up behind the lectern and he said, you know, if you believe everything somebody says about you, introducing you to an audience such as this, you're finished. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, I'm very glad to be here. The title of the lecture for tonight is Oral Texts and Rhetorical Contexts, Paul, the Great Persuader. Ours is a text-based culture a culture of written documents. You need look no further than your computer screen to verify this assertion. There could only be an Internet age if there was reasonably widespread literacy. Maybe I'd better use the word literacy with a little L rather than a big L. But in any case, this leads to widespread production and reading of texts. It is thus difficult for us in a text-based culture like this one to conceive of and understand the character of an oral culture, much less understand how sacred texts, like Paul's letters, function in such an oral culture. Yet however difficult it is, it is important that we try to understand such a thing since all the cultures of the Bible were essentially oral cultures. They are not text-based cultures, and their texts were, in fact, oral texts. Now, you may be saying to yourself, oral texts. That's about as much of an oxymoron as Microsoft works. <laughs> oral text. Come on, Dr. Ben. But, in fact, it's not an oxymoron, as we will see. The literacy rate in the biblical cultures, including the cultures of the New Testament age, seem to have ranged from about 5% to 20%, depending on what subculture or group we are talking about. Not surprisingly, then, all ancient peoples, whether literate or not, preferred what they called the living word, that is, the spoken word. Texts were enormously expensive to produce. Papyrus was expensive, ink was expensive, Scribes were ultra-expensive. If you go to the Museum of Egyptology in Cairo, 
there is a little tiny hobbit-sized scribe sitting in the lotus position on the lap of his ruler taking notes. This was the original laptop. (laughs) Texts were enormously expensive to produce. Papyrus was expensive. Ink was expensive. And scribes were ultra-expensive. Being a secretary in Jesus or Paul's age was a lucrative job indeed. No wonder, Jesus said to his audience, let those who have two good ears listen. He did not ever say, you will notice, let those who have two good eyes read. Most eyes could not read in the biblical period. So far as we can tell, no documents, and I repeat, no documents in antiquity were intended for what we might call silent reading. And only few were intended for private individuals to read. They were always meant to be read out loud and usually read out loud to a group of people. For the most part, they were simple, necessary surrogates for oral communication. This was particularly true of ancient letters. Just as I have used the phrase oral texts, now I'm going to say to you, Ancient letters mostly aren't really letters. They are speeches. They are discourses sent from afar and meant to be orally delivered when they arrive in the hands of one of Paul's co-workers. Most ancient documents, including letters, were not really texts in the modern sense at all. They were composed with their oral and oral potential in mind and they were meant to be orally delivered when they arrived at their destination. For example, when you read the opening verses of Ephesians, once you get past the real introit, then you have a 26-line long sentence full of assonance, alliteration, rhythm, rhyme, and various rhetorical devices. Every English translation I know translates those 26 long lines into numerous English sentences. I can only conclude this means that Paul was even more long-winded than modern American preachers. We have proof of this from the book of Acts where Eutychus fell out the window. It is clear that no one was meant to read Ephesians originally in any other language than in in Greek, no one was meant to hear it in any other language but Greek, and it was never meant to be read silently or else you lose all of the oral dimension of the text. It needed to be heard. And indeed, there was a further reason it needed to be orally delivered. Because of the cost of making documents and the cost of papyrus, a standard letter in Greek would have no separation of words, sentences, paragraphs, almost no punctuation, either all capital letters or all small letters, and yea, verily, no chapters and verses. If you wonder where the chapter and verse numbers came from, they didn't come from the Bible code book. They came from Archbishop Langton in the Middle Ages who had far too much time on his hands and divided the whole Bible up in Canterbury into chapters and verses. 
But original first century texts look like this. This is P46, maybe one of the two or three earliest pieces of papyri of the Greek New Testament that we have. It's a small section of 1 Thessalonians 2. And what you would, should notice is scriptum continuum. Letter after letter after letter after letter after letter. No separation of words. No separation of sentences. No separation of paragraphs ad infinitum. The only way you can read this text is out loud so that you know how to separate one word from another. And secondly, the only way you can read this text is out loud by someone who has read it before and knows where to separate the lines. Now, Here's another example. This is P52, which may well be the very earliest fragment we have of the Greek New Testament. It, it may date as early as maybe 110, 120 A.D. It's from John 18, every good Catholic's favorite gospel. And it is in lowercase letters. Now, what makes this interesting and unusual is there, there are actually... Three places in these pieces, and this is just one piece of this papyri, where there is a little separation between words, but that is so unusual that it stands out from the whole rest of the document. So I've tried to give you the bit that shows you the separation. Now suppose I were to give you an English translation that looked like this. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God all run together. Well, that would be awkward and in an age of biblical illiteracy would not work so well. But even in English, we might have the same kind of problems that they had in the first century in separating one word from another if the text was not familiar. For example, let's take this sentence. What are the possibilities of what this sentence the second dot down says, I heard somebody say, Jesus is now here. What else could it say? <laughs> Jesus is nowhere. But if you, like me, are from eastern North Carolina, it could be, geez, us is nowhere. <laughs> My point is simply this. With scriptum continuum, you have to read it out loud to make sense of it. Perhaps you know the famous story about St. Augustine. He was very impressed with St. Ambrose. He said about him this, St. Ambrose is the first person I have ever met who can read without moving his lips. That is, he can read silently. What we see at the beginning of the Middle Ages is the transition from an oral culture to a culture of texts, and especially Christian texts. Clearly, an oral culture is a different world than a largely literate text-based culture, and more to the point, 
Texts like Paul's letters function differently in that world. It has been said that the past is like a foreign country. They do things differently there. Amen to that. I love to take my students to the lands of the Bible so that they will develop a case of cultural vertigo. For example, I love to take them to Luxor and the great temple in Luxor. So picture them standing looking at this enormous column of hieroglyphics next to a statue of Ramses and Nefertiri. On the right, to their left, there is a Japanese tour group taking a million pictures. To their right, there's a German tour host lecturing on and on in Hochdeutsch. And over the loudspeaker right next to the temple in Luxor is the Arabic call to prayer. Right about then, my students from good old Kentucky get cultural vertigo. And they start looking for some American comfort food. And the guy that we were with on this particular occasion realized what was happening to them. And he pointed them out of the temple across the street. And he said, behold, the American cultural embassy. It was McDonald's. <laughs> it's a sad commentary on America, friends, that the only thing the whole world knows about America is McDonald's. The worlds of the Bible are not like Houston, Texas. The cultures of the Bible are not like Houston, Texas. And here's where I give you my little mantra for tonight. A text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Repeat after me. A text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. We have to study the Bible, and especially something as complex as Paul's letters, in their original historical and rhetorical and social and linguistic context. We must do that or we will badly, badly misunderstand the text. Let me illustrate this with a story. In 1969, I was riding on the Bluegrass Parkway in the mountains of lovely North Carolina when my countenance fell because my 1955 Chevrolet, the clutch, blew out. And if you know anything about this National Park Highway, yea, verily, there are no Shell or Texaco stations. There is no help for a dead car, so we had to have it pushed off the ramp into a parking lot, and we were young kids at that point, high school students, so my friend Doug and I hitchhiked a ride all the way back to the middle of the state in High Point. Now, we were picked up by Flatlanders. Maybe you don't know what Flatlanders are. Those are folks, there are still some out there, who do not believe the world is round. We, Doug and I, were in the back of the car, Doug, who is now a lawyer in Greensboro, North Carolina, decided to strike up a conversation with this really ancient mountain couple that had picked us up in a 48 Plymouth. Doug said, well, what would you think about the landing on the moon with Neil Armstrong? The man driving the car said, that's all fake. Hollywood stunt. Everybody knows those pictures of the world revolving and round ain't real. Doug did not recognize invincible ignorance when he saw it. <laughs> so he pressed the matter. He said, why don't you think the world is round? Says in the book of Revelations, 
Now, beware of anybody who calls the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelations, plural, because that isn't its title. Okay, it says in the book of Revelations, the angels will stand on the four corners of the earth. The world can't be round, mister, if it's got four corners. <laughs> a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. Now, the problem with this gentleman is not that he took the Bible seriously. It's that he took apocalyptic metaphorical images literally. This is the problem. So here's the rule. You interpret literal text literally, figurative text figuratively, parabolic text parabolically, and so on. You need to know the literary genre of the text to understand it. You have to interpret it in its original context. Now, when we come to the letters of Paul, John Donne said this, wheresoever I open the letters of Paul, I hear thunder, a thunder that rolls throughout the earth. It's what the Germans call Sturm und Drang, thunder and lightning. Paul is heavy going. The New Testament even says so. If you've ever read the end of 2 Peter, it says there are some things in St. Paul's letters that are hard to understand, that the feeble-minded twist in their own ways. It's been ever thus with Paul's letters, I'm afraid. What do texts in an oral culture tell us about a chap like Paul? Well, in the first place, friends, he was an evangelist. He was not mainly a text writer. Have you noticed that in the book of Acts, not once do we hear about Paul writing any letters? From Acts 1 to Acts 28, there are Zippo references to Paul writing any letters. He's simply an evangelist, proclaiming the good news orally to the world. Letters are his surrogates when he can't get there to deliver it in person. This is what he would have preached had he been there on the occasion, but he could not be. Now, one of the things that strikes me as odd is that an awful lot of people have this image of early Christians as sort of bucolic peasants who are illiterate. This is largely not true. The 27 documents of the New Testament reflect a remarkable level of literacy. And indeed, not just literacy, but rhetorical skill amongst the inner leaders of the early Christian movement. Early Christianity was not, by and large, a movement led by illiterate peasants or the socially deprived. The leaders of the movement mostly produced the texts of the movement, and the texts of the New Testament reflected a considerable knowledge of Greek, of rhetoric, and of Greco-Roman culture. By the way, a little plug for the Houston Museum of Fine Arts. Go see the Afghanistan exhibit. It's fabulous, and it shows you the level of Greek culture in Bactria, Afghanistan, in uh, before the time of Christ. Incredibly advanced culture. The leaders of the early Christian movement mostly produced the text of the movement, and the texts are remarkably literate and skilled and full of erudition, and nowhere is that more so than in Paul's letters, hence the storm und drang. 
When Paul used scribes, and he certainly did, it appears to be clear that they mostly took dictation. There are several ways we know this. In the middle of 1 Corinthians, sometimes a sentence simply stops. It's called a sendeton. What happened? The scribe's hand was falling off. Paul was dictating too fast. We have incomplete sentences in various of Paul's letters, which are signs of rapid dictation. I like Tertius, one of my favorite early Christian scribes. After writing down all 16 chapters of Romans, he figured he was entitled to get into Holy Writ. So in Romans 16, towards its very end, we have these words, I, Tertius, greet you in the Lord. (laughs) And ever since, he's been in the good book. (laughs) Yes, Paul used scribes, but he used them to take dictation. One of the interesting historical questions to ask and answer about this period is when did, in fact, taking dictation fast happen? Well, it, in fact, happened during the time of the first century B.C. Cicero had a scribe named Tiro who was capable of what was called tachyography, that is, fast writing. So by the time of Paul, there were learned and capable scribes who could keep up pretty well with Paul. What we have in Paul's documents, let me say this as clearly as we can, is something that's not like modern letters at all or like modern email messages. Sometimes you hear people talk about Paul's letters and call them conversations in context sort of like Paul is texting somebody and somebody's texting him back. Not. No, Paul is not expecting a response anytime soon. It may be months. And in lieu of him being there, he is giving them a sermon or a discourse to help them make it through their difficulties. These are discourses. They are homilies. They are rhetorical speeches. And here's the good news for all of you who have to teach and preach the Bible. They're already preaching. They're ready-made for preaching. There's not a big gap between what we do orally and what he's doing in his letters. Hallelujah. That's good news. Now, these documents were not intended to be handed to just anybody. They were intended to be handed to a trusted co-worker who would go and not hand over the document, but do what? Orally and rhetorically perform the document in a dramatic way. Let me say that again. They were not called to go and just deliver the document and say, you've got mail. No, they were supposed to go and unroll the scroll and perform the document because a Timothy or a Titus would know the content of the document, could follow the scriptum continuum, and could deliver it effectively, knowing when to pause, knowing where the sentence breaks were, etc. Now, this brings us a clue about a lot of things in the New Testament. I want to diverge from Paul for just a minute to show you what I mean. There were lectors... There were readers, official readers of New Testament documents who performed these documents for congregations. Two texts come to mind. 
Mark 13, 14, and Revelation 1, 3. So let me just read to you from Revelation 1, 3, because this is the clearest one. Right at the beginning of Revelation, we hear these words. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. Now, did you catch that? Blessed is the one singular person, ho anagnoskon, ho anagnoskon, a single reader. Blessed is the one who reads out loud this document and those who hear it. Now, who are these two groups? The hearers are clearly the congregations in the seven churches in western Turkey that John of Patmos is writing to. Who's the reader? This is the surrogate that John of Patmos sent to orally deliver, read out the document. Another good example of this would be Mark 13, 14. In the middle of describing things eschatological and apocalyptic, Mark gets to the point in Jesus' speech where Jesus has mentioned the abomination that makes desolate and Mark feels compelled to insert a little parenthesis. In antiquity, there were no footnotes, so you put qualifications right in the text. Here's what the parenthesis in Mark 13, 14 says. Let the reader understand. Again, ho anagnoskon, a singular reader. He does not say let the readers plural understand. Who is this reader who needs to understand this reference to the abomination that makes desolate? It is the person Mark assigned to go and deliver the good news according to Mark to some congregation. This is the way an oral culture works when only 5% of the population can read or write. That's the way it works, and that's the way it works with Paul's letters. Now let's return to Paul's letters. How did a sacred text function in an oral culture? Not just any texts. Let me give you a recitation of a very brief letter from the very same year, 51 AD, that Paul wrote for us Thessalonians, maybe his first letter. Here's the letter. Stoedius to his own Blastus, greetings. I trust that you are well. I sent my slave Publius to you to collect the forked stakes for the olive grove. See that he does not loiter as I need him. Vale, farewell, A.D. 51. That's it. That's the way most ancient letters were. They were short. They were to the point. They could be written on a little scrap of papyrus or a potsherd and sent off. Paul's letters are nothing like that. They are long and, yea, verily, often difficult to understand. The letter I recited for you is not a sacred text. It's an ordinary, plebeian, mundane letter. But Paul believed that he was inspired by God. He believed that the words that he said 
had been inspired by the Holy Spirit and he intended to deliver them or have them delivered in a way that would be effective. So I want to read to you a crucial text from Paul. This is 1 Thessalonians, and we're looking at the second chapter, verse 13. Now, I could preach for a while on this one verse, but I will not. (laughs) Here's what it says. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work now in you who believe. Now, did you catch that? We thank God for the word of God, which you heard from us, Paul the proclaimer, which is now alive and at work in you. There are three ways the phrase word of God is used in the New Testament. Word of God, as in Word of God incarnate, John 1, the Logos. Word of God orally, the spoken Word of God, the so-called living Word of God. And, of course, Word of God is text. Guess which of these three is the most frequently used in the New Testament? Word of God is orally spoken Word, inspired, sacred Word. After that... Word of God as person or Word of God as text thereafter. This speaks directly to the nature of this culture in which Paul operated. The truth of the matter is, dear friends, that Paul believed just as Jesus believed, just as Luke believed, just as Peter believed, that they were conveying a message from God inspired by the Holy Spirit And ancient peoples believed that those were not mere sounds, not mere ciphers. They believed that a word from a deity was alive and active and penetrated to the hearts of people. Listen to what Isaiah 55.11 says. So shall my word be, says God, that goes forth out of my mouth, It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the things I send it to do. It's more like yeast in dough than lines on a page. It's alive, it's active, and it changes people. Think of the author of Hebrews when he says the word of God is like what? A powerful two-edged sword that penetrates between bone and marrow and gets to the very heart of a person. This is how ancient people viewed sacred texts. And when they believed that they had in their hands a sacred text, they took it very seriously and they handled it prayerfully and carefully. There is historical evidence already in the second century AD that we had Elite scribes, many of whom were women because they had what was called a fairer hand. They could copy the Greek better and more clearly to copy these sacred texts. Perhaps already by 125, there was a collection of Paul's letters circulating. Second Peter 3 mentions this. And a collection of the four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Stick with those and you can't go wrong. 
two collections of documents, the four canonical gospels and a collection of Paul's letters. These were early Christianity's sacred texts. Now, I've talked about orality up tonight, up to this point tonight. What I want to do now is talk to you about the rhetorical character of the culture in which Paul lived and breathed and spoke. Two things. Sometimes when we use the word rhetoric today, we think words full of sound and fury signifying nothing. We think of mere verbal eloquence. We think of political harangue. Now this is unfortunate because that's not what the word rhetoric meant in the world of St. Paul. It meant the art of persuasion. It meant the art of persuasion. It was the ancient way to preach. And Paul uses it in every single pee-picking letter that we have from him. It is, in fact, a discourse in rhetorical form. When you lop off the epistolary beginning of the document and the epistolary conclusion and greetings at the end, what you have in 90% or more of every single Pauline letter is a speech, a sermon, a discourse in rhetorical form meant to be heard. Here's where I also say to you that rhetoric was the foundation of ancient education, both Greco-Roman and Jewish. There was a school of rhetoric in Jerusalem in St. Paul's day for training Pharisees in rhetoric. Why would they need it? Because diaspora Jews from all over the Greco-Roman world were coming and moving to Jerusalem, and the Pharisees wanted to reach them for the sake of their Pharisaic gospel. So how were they going to do that? The diaspora Jews knew not Hebrew. What language was the language of the lingua franca of the culture? It was Greek. How would a Hebrew-speaking Jew convince a Greek-speaking Jew about the truths of Torah? He would use Greco-Roman rhetoric. Greco-Roman rhetoric goes all the way back to Aristotle, which is to say the person who trained Alexander the Great. It goes back to the 5th century and 4th centuries B.C. It was the established staple of elementary education throughout the Hellenized world, including in Israel, during the lifetime of St. Paul. Learning how to write long letter essays did not come about until the first century B.C. with a figure like Cicero, and there were no schools of letter writing in antiquity. There were schools of rhetoric in Alexandria, in Jerusalem, in Tarsus, in Pergamum, in Athens, in Rome, all over the Greco-Roman world. For an evangelistic religion, it's a no-brainer. You want to convince the world of the truth of the gospel? What are you going to do? Learn rhetoric, the ancient art of persuasion, and use it persuasively for the cause of Jesus Christ. And that is precisely what Paul did. Now, there were three kinds of ancient rhetoric, friends. There was forensic rhetoric, there was epideictic rhetoric, and there was deliberative rhetoric. Forensic rhetoric has a special venue, the rhetoric of the law court. 
Epideictic rhetoric is the rhetoric of funerals or the agora. Deliberative rhetoric is the rhetoric of the ecclesia. Now, those of you who have a smattering of Greek, you will know this word. Ecclesia is the word in the New Testament that we translate as church. But what it means is assembly. And it was originally the word applied to the Greek democratic assembly in the 5th century B.C. It's the place where you went to do what? Deliberate the earmarks on the legislation. That's exactly what Ecclesia is all about. A listening and dialoguing and discoursing about things that need to change. Things that need to happen differently. Forensic rhetoric, the rhetoric of the law court. Epideictic rhetoric, the rhetoric of eulogies, encomiums, and entertainment, the three E's. Deliberative rhetoric, the serious rhetoric about behavior and change of policy in the demos and the ecclesia. It was the rhetoric Paul most frequently used. Now, the focus temporally of these three different kind of rhetorics is forensic rhetoric focuses naturally on the past. I mean, you don't try somebody in a court case for something they haven't done yet, or not usually. So the temporal focus of forensic rhetoric is on something done in the past. Epideictic rhetoric focuses on praise and blame in the present. Forensic rhetoric, attack and defense in the past. Epideictic rhetoric, praise and blame in the present. Deliberative rhetoric, advice and consent in the future. Paul was a master of all three different types of rhetoric. And his letters, we find all of these kinds of rhetoric used with great skill and erudition. Now I want to give you a small sample. We're going to turn to the smallest and last of Paul's letters. In case you're wondering why Paul's letters are arranged like they are, it's because originally they would have been on one scroll. So you start with what? The longest one? And you finish with what? The shortest one because you might run out of space. Okay? That's how you do it. So the, long, the shortest one is Philemon. Let's listen to this document. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this a private letter? Survey says, no. It's addressed to Philemon and his wife, probably, Aphia, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Um, Philemon is about to be outed in front of his house church by this letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray, Philemon, that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Jesus. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now, here's the way rhetoric works. You start by buttering them up. It's called establishing rapport with your audience. Or as kids today would say, it's the sucking up. 
you have the sucking up at the beginning of a rhetorical speech. It's called the exordium. You establish rapport and contact with your audience so that they're all going, well, isn't that special? Paul loves me. That's before you hit them between the eyes with a two-by-four. Paul does this in every one of his documents except Galatians where he couldn't think of anything to be thankful for on that occasion. He begins with a thanksgiving prayer. Now that he's made Philemon feel comfortable, then he says this, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and I could command you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal or persuade you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is what you call an emotional appeal, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Now, if you don't know Greek, the thing is that Onesimus means it's a slave's nickname and it means old useful. That's what it means. So what is Paul doing? He's playing on the name of the slave. Formerly he useful was useless to you, but now he's become useful again because I've converted him and I'm sending him back to you so that he can be more Onesimus to both you and to me. <clears throat> Listen to how Paul pleads. I'm sending him to you who is my very heart. See, where this is going is Paul is implying if you don't send him back to me, a free man, you will have taken out my heart and stomped on that sucker. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to kept him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would do would not seem to be forced but would be entirely voluntary. Hint, hint. Now this letter is being read to the house church of Philemon. You feel like he's feeling the heat yet? Perhaps the reason he was separated you from, from you for a little while, that is, why he ran away, perhaps the what reason he was separated you from you for a little while was that he might have, you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, hint, hint, but better than a slave, more than a slave, as a dear brother in Christ. Yes, he is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So Philemon, if you consider me a partner, welcome him back like you would welcome me, the apostle to the Gentiles. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, well, just charge it to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Did I mention to you that you owe me your very spiritual life? Now, in a modern culture, this would seem to be very manipulative. In Paul's world, this is the run of the mill, what you do every day with Greco-Roman rhetoric. This is how you persuade. I do not wish, brother, that I may have some, I do wish, brother, that I may have some use, 
benefit, O Naaman, from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And then he says this. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Did you see what he said here at the end? Confident of your obedience. This is like how my bishop talks to me. Confident of your obedience, I know that you'll do even more than I ask. Now, what has he not asked? He's not asked that he be manumitted, that he be emancipated. But that's what he wants. He wants him to be. This, friends, is the New Testament Emancipation Proclamation. That's what this is. Oh, and one more thing. Prepare me a guest room because I hope to be restored to you soon in answer to your prayers. That is... If you don't do this, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Old St. Paul is coming to town. That's what he says at the end of this document. These are highly emotion-saturated rhetorical documents. And Paul pulls out all the emotional and logical stops in order to accomplish his purposes in all his letters. Now, I'd like to say one last thing as we're bringing this to a point of Q&A. If you can get hold of both the type of rhetoric he uses in a document, whether it's deliberative, forensic, or epideictic, and then you can find his proposition statement at the beginning and his peroration at the end, you have Paul by the short hairs. You know exactly what the function of all those arguments in the middle of that document are about. You look for the thesis statement at the beginning. You look for the peroration or summation at the end. And then you will know what the purpose of this document is. I'll give you two brief examples. Let's turn to the Romer brief, Romans. Romans chapter 1, the propositio as the Latin orator Quintilian called it, is this. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is the theme, subject, thesis of this document? It has to do with the righteousness of God and the right standing through faith of those who believe in God. Let me say that again. The major topic for all of what follows in Romans is the righteousness of God and the right standing of human beings before God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the thesis statement. Let me give you one more example. The thesis statements always come at the beginning. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it's just one verse. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, this is verse 10, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. What is this discourse about? 
It's an argument for unity amongst a many splintered group of house churches. It's an argument for concord in the midst of faction, sectarian behavior, and divisions because the church in Corinth was a many splintered thing. That's what this is. That's the thesis statement. And all of the arguments that follow are intended to reinforce and prove and make persuasive the initial thesis statement. Now, I want to also leave you with one example of a peroration, a conclusion. The rhetoricians all tell us that there are three ways to properly conclude a sermon. You know, one of them is not by saying, and finally. At least in my Methodist tradition, and finally means the minister is likely to go on for at least another 10 minutes. (laughs) But in a peroration in antiquity, you had one of three things you wanted to accomplish. A, you were going to sum up what you had said before. B, you were going to one more time further develop the last argument that you made in this discourse. Or C, you were going to make an emotional appeal that appealed to the deepest emotions of love and hate or or grief and joy to bind them to the task of affirming and being persuaded by the argument. Well, in Ephesians 6, we have the third kind of peroration. I can almost hear Wagner in the background here. Dun 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 and Paul says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not Yea, verily, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after done, if you've done everything, you stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and be alert, be ready. It's like he's reciting the scout oath at the very end. Scout is... Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind of beat it, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. At the end of a discourse, you appeal to the deeper emotions, to the gut, to reinforce the arguments that have gone before and seal the deal. This, friends, was good preaching in antiquity. These letters are the transcripts of the preaching. We don't have to go looking for Paul's sermons We have them right here in the New Testament. Our job in the year of Paul is to proclaim them. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Please. I I have a question. Since we live in a culture that is both textual and 
media saturated. Yeah. A, a, a culture that sort of speaks back to us from the television, the radio, the yep. iPod, and so forth and so on. And since you're saying that Paul's letters were really meant to be heard, yep. would we be better just to download James Earl Jones on, on, uh, on the iPod reading them and listen to them uh, as opposed to sitting in silence and studying them as we've tried to do in the past? Well, my word to that is let's use as many orifices as we've got to get as much Paul into us as we can. But I do really encourage you to hear the word. I I went to a wonderful performance of the whole of the Gospel of St. Mark in London by Alec McGowan some years ago. He did Mark 1 through 8, then we had a uh, 30-minute intermission, and then he did Mark 9 through 16. And honestly, hearing the whole thing as a whole instead of soundbiting it, which is what we do in preaching. I mean, this is the problem with the lectionary. We soundbite the text. Even good preachers soundbite the text. Uh, To hear the whole shebang from start to finish was a revelation because there were things I, I heard and saw in my mind that had never registered before. And, and what I know about these texts is <clears throat> the very first act of listening should have been hearing the whole thing. So maybe in our media culture, we're going to head back towards the original. If we do it that way, we can maybe head back towards the original way that it was appreciated. And I would say, too, that you, you will do better with a dramatic reading and not just a flat one. This is why I like the, the Zondervan thing, the Bible experience with all the African Americans doing, because they get into it, you know, and it's vigorous, and it's, it's wonderful, and it's lively, and it gives you a sense for how it would have been proclaimed originally, because these folks were passionate about this stuff. They gave their lives for this stuff. This was not where they were going to get up in, in, in a marketplace in an agora and say, if it's ever so much trouble, if it's not too much trouble, if you, if you don't mind, I'd really like to share some good news. I don't mean to offend, but if it would be possible, could you listen to me? No. This is not first century rhetoric. That's not how it works. So yes, absolutely hear it. And even if you don't know a word of Greek, I would encourage you to just listen to some of it in manageable size McNugget portions in Greek. Because what you're going to hear is the rhythm and the rhyme and the assonance and the alliteration. And you'll realize this stuff is poetic. This stuff makes better sense. I mean, when a preacher is on and they're on a roll and they're in a flow and there is an eloquence to it and the the sound of the words were as convicting and convincing as what the words said it was part of the whole package and there were gestures as well you know um there's a famous story about a rhetorician in the agora in Corinth who was really persuading a lot of people to buy his snake oil and uh, all of a sudden, a wind came through, and it blew his toupee right off the top of his head, <laughs> and everybody broke into laughter and tears and bought none of the snake oil, you know, and uh, somebody commented, he's having a bad ethos day, you know, <laughs> and this is a culture that didn't have TV and didn't have the iPods and didn't have the internet, and so entertainment for them was listening, listening to speakers, listening to speakers, and so that was ready-made for evangelism in antiquity. So what we have to figure out is where and in what venues are people prepared to listen to people sharing good news in a convicted way, and 
my word to you about that is certainly not just in the four walls of the church. We need to do this sharing like they did in homes, in Starbucks, in wherever we can do it, you know, because that's the way Paul did it in all kinds of venues, wherever he was able to do it, even in jail. Well, it's certainly been entertaining listening to you. We really appreciate it. And thank, thank you for answering you very much. Question. Thank you. And, you know, some of that has to do with cultural differences. It really does. Um, there are places where the passion of Paul in, in the Western world is a put-off, no question. And, and you know, his words just read flatly in various places. Let's say Galatians is a good example. When he says, oh, you idiot Galatians, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. He sounds pretty strident. Um, I think that what we have to realize is, as my granny used to say, it's how you say it. It's not just what you say. And what gets lost in translation is we aren't hearing how he said it or how a Timothy or a Titus said it. And it could be off-putting. I think that's exactly right. It's interesting to me, though, that those parts of Christian subculture that are used to passionate exhortation and don't just take it as yet another harangue that turns me off, okay? Um, for example, in the African American, large parts of the African American church, uh, they don't read Paul that way. They don't see Paul as stern. They see him as strong, but, but not as... Um, what shall we say, cruel, vindictive, mean-spirited, none of that. Uh, so I understand it. You know, here's part of the problem. We live in a Jesus-haunted culture that's biblically illiterate. And so we also live in a Paul-haunted culture that's biblically illiterate. And so the problem is that our image of Paul and the real Paul don't match up. And so... For some of us, there is an obstacle to get over in order to hear the real Paul. And my word of encouragement to you would be just keep listening, keep trying, give him a fair chance. And even if you find him an old curmudgeon at the end of the day, he's at least a good curmudgeon who worked for a noble cause. She's talking about how some of the more uplifting and moving passages of Paul um, have really lifted her up in times of depression. One of the things that Paul does as a skillful rhetorician, and understand, I'm not saying this is artificial. It's skillful, but like a Michelangelo, it's skill in the service of what you're passionate about. Okay, This is not just artifice without ethos. Um, one of the things Paul does when he's rounding up a good argument is he goes into doxology. And he says things like, neither height nor depth nor powers nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor anything in all of creation can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, this is the conclusion of the arguments for his case, for his gospel about a righteous God and person set right by Jesus Christ. That's the conclusion of all of his arguments for. What's going to happen in Romans 9.1 is he begins his argument against for there were Gentile Christians in Rome who thought that God had forsaken his first chosen people, the Jews. So there is a dramatic emotional break between the end of 8 and the beginning of 9 because 9.1 begins 
a whole different argument, and it's an argument against the problem that was in Rome that he had to address, the bone of contention. So yes, we have a lot of passages like that. Paul often breaks into doxology at the end of an important argument, and Romans 8 is certainly one of the most important of the arguments, absolutely. Other questions? Yes, sir, please. In what ways did Paul imitate Jesus and... For us contemporary Christians, how do we apply and live that today? Oh, wonderful questions. Everybody, everybody heard the question? Okay, we're good with that. Um, wh- let me tell you a little bit about imitation in antiquity. This is the heart of ancient pedagogy. The way children learned in antiquity was by imitating their teachers. And especially when it came to public speaking. They would imitate the sound of their voice, their gestures, and the heart of ancient education was rote memorization. I know you don't want to hear that, but this was the heart of ancient education. It was rote memorization. And so when Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, he is saying, I have learned from Christ and those who proclaimed him to me, Peter and James and John and the others that he had contact with in Jerusalem. And I am imaging in my life the life of Christ. I am a walking tableau or portrait of the life of Christ. And you can see this in a lot of ways. First of all, Paul lived self-sacrificially. Um, you know, he, he was prepared to suffer. In fact, he even says at one point, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I think that he not only patterned himself on the teachings of Christ, but also on the lifestyle of Christ, and he was prepared to give his life for the gospel, and indeed he did in the end in Rome. So Uh, The truth of the matter is that when he talks about imitation, he doesn't just mean do as I say, though he does mean that. He also means what? Do as I do. Walk this way. Follow my example. Now, that, of course, puts enormous pressure on a leader because if people are going to imitate your actions, follow you as the lead and guide for your actions, then in many cases what you do is more important than what you say because if there is an inconsistency between saying and doing, the saying will fall by the wayside if it's not reinforced by the doing. That's for sure. I have a friend that has a coffee cup. It says, to be is to do. Aristotle, uh, Plato. Then below that it says, to do is to be Aristotle. And then below that it says, dooby-dooby-doo, Frank Sinatra. (laughs) That's about the level of profundity in American philosophy. But both Plato and Aristotle agreed there is this integral connection between being and doing, that you need to be living gospels, and it's important to realize that. That's really crucial. Are you a living legacy of those who have invested the life of Christ in your life? 
Any other questions? Yes, sir, please. I arrived here late, uh, but at any rate, uh, one word that you used was principalities. And uh, St. Paul uh, was uh, crucified literally in Italy, while uh, Rome. And uh, what kind of influence did he have on the philosophy of uh, Machiavelli in writing The Prince for the Medicis? Whoa. Okay, um, I don't know that he had much of any, but Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. He was not crucified. Uh, he was beheaded. But Machiavelli, if I understand him rightly, was, um, he was concerned about the political leaders acting in expedient manners. And if you read Romans 13, Paul has a very different word about how governmental leaders should act. He calls them the instruments of God for justice. And if you read Machiavelli, Machiavelli is he's talking about situation ethics. He's not really talking about be a just ruler. Uh, so I don't see much connection between what Paul says about rulers and what Machiavelli says. In fact, I would say that Machiavelli is kind of a rebuttal to what Paul would say about a righteous ruler, to be honest. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for your excellent presentation. I really appreciated your concept of a thesis statement that Paul gives in most of his letters. Uh, In our readings in Catholic liturgy, we normally focus on just one section of of Paul, a small section of one of his letters. And um, in preaching about Paul, should we be focusing on these thesis statements that you refer to? Well, I think that's a wonderful place to start. I, you know, that what, what I would do in order to help give people an orientation to a whole document of Paul is I would focus on the thesis statement and the peroration of any of these documents, and all of them have them. All of them have them. You just need to know where to look at the beginning and towards the end. A peroration is never right at the end because you're going to have some epistolary stuff at the very end. But yes, those two things will provide a wonderful orientation as to what's going on in the document. And one of the clues to understand what kind of rhetoric you're dealing with is ask the temporal question. Is this document about trying to change the audience's behavior in the new future, near future? If it is, like 1 Corinthians is, then this is deliberative rhetoric and all of that kind of style and form applies. It's going to be rhetoric about doing something in the future to change your behavior and your beliefs, okay? If it's epideictic rhetoric like Ephesians is, he's trying to reinforce what we should praise and what we should blame in the present. So there's not going to be a lot of talk about changing behavior in the future. He's going to be talking about standing firm, staying where you are, not moving. That's present tense rhetoric. You see that in Hebrews. Hebrews is is one long, powerful, epideictic sermon. That's what it is. And it's trying to reinforce values and practices and behavior that they already embrace. He doesn't want them to commit apostasy. So he's saying, whoa, stand where you are. Stay where you are. Do not fall back. Um, So if you can get a sense of the temporal orientation of document, then you can really understand what kind of rhetoric you're dealing with. Now, where it gets um, interesting is that in the same discourse, you can use several different kinds of rhetoric. 
For in 1 Corinthians 13, we have an epideictic masterpiece in praise of love. It's the most poetic piece of passage in, in Paul's letters as Greek poetry. That's what it is. Uh, but it's in the middle of an otherwise deliberative discourse. So you may have a mixture of, of forms of rhetoric in one discourse. But when, if you can get an overall sense of what kind of rhetoric it is and where the thesis statement is, you're good. Because then you will really understand the trajectory of what's being said. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for your beautiful presentation. Thank you. My question is, we're studying Corinthians, and they say that Corinthians is not only two letters, but may have been more that were put together. And I was wondering if a scribe just fell asleep, and then we thought it was a different letter, because it's interruptions in the flow of the text. Uh, I just would like your comment on that. Are you talking about 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians? I'm... Uh, I am not very familiar with Corinthians. I'm just right. beginning to study. Well, most scholars would say 1 Corinthians is a single letter. There are some scholars who would say 2 Corinthians is a composite of several different letters. I, but the vast majority of Corinthian scholars would say 1 Corinthians is a single letter, and I, I think that's right because it, it, it makes sense. I, I would just also say when you're dealing with partition theories about letters like, say, 2 Corinthians, my word about that is, here's part of the problem. In the middle, or even before, excuse me, in, in the early part of the 20th century, Christian education lost its knowledge of Greco-Roman rhetoric because it stopped teaching it. It stopped teaching it in the universities. It stopped teaching it in the divinity schools and the seminaries. And this was true right across Europe. For some reason, one of the staples of Western education, which was logic and rhetoric, uh, was no longer taught beginning in the early part of the 20th century. And so we forgot how to read these documents rhetorically when they came out of a rhetorically saturated culture. What I have found about people who think that 2 Corinthians is a composite of several letters is they don't know rhetoric. They don't understand how there are specific rules about how to shift your argument when you're moving from topic to topic, and Paul follows them religiously. And so the idea that it's a composite document, A, has no textual basis whatsoever. There's, we don't have any documents that only have, say, 2 Corinthians 6.14 to 7.1. We don't have any documents like that. And B, those who make those kind of arguments are doing it on the basis of what is called old form criticism. And actually without knowledge of rhetoric. And, and so I, I don't actually find any of Paul's letters as composite documents like that. I think they're all rhetorically coherent documents. I'm going to leave you with a story. A good North Carolinian wouldn't leave you without a story. Some time ago, I got a letter in the mail from Time Magazine. You know how these letters are. They're form letters where they type in your name every so often to make it look personal. Only Time Warner is a big corporation and they're downsizing and um, the magazine sales are not so good and so they left it to the computer and the computer read my name, Dr. Ben Witherington III. But that was way too much. Computer couldn't squeeze all of that into those little spaces in the letter in, in, unless it was .005 font. So it being a smart computer, it just lopped off all the middle bits and the letter read Dear Dr. Third, we know you're one of the most important persons in your neighborhood. 
Yes, Dr. Third is a caring and compassionate individual, even as a Christian minister. We are appealing to you using persuasive rhetoric to get you to re-sign up. Surely you wish to keep abreast of foreign and domestic affairs, so please, Dr. Third, just sign your name at the bottom, Dr. Third, and we will continue to send you week after week of our wonderful Newsweekly Time magazine. Yours sincerely, Time Incorporated. Now, I was tempted to write them back, Dear Inc. (laughs) When the world tries to be personal, it treats persons as numbers and things. But when God is personal, he sends his only begotten son in person, the incarnate Christ, and he sends out personal messengers who call you by name to respond to the good news. It's my hope that you will do so. Thank you.